six weeks ago, uh, we set the position piece this, this last six weeks in question by asking, uh, or in place, I should say, by asking two questions. The first question was this, what's wrong with the world? Everyone's got an opinion, so what do you think? What's wrong with the world? And second then is once you've been determined what's wrong with the world, then how do you propose we fix it? And that's what we started this whole last six weeks with. And our response has really been the response of Jesus, which is if your immediate answer to what's wrong with the world is them or they, then that may just be a political response. But Jesus actually said it's that, that may be a part of it, but truthfully, the real problems out there first start in here. That it's an internal thing in every one of our hearts and lives. And then as that begins to be healed and formed and shaped, it, we can see differences made on the outside. And so that we've talked about these last six weeks that we move from being lost to found, not just right to wrong. We move from being found by Christ to following Christ. And I'm going to hone in on this step with a little bit more intention today. Following Jesus to serving others and then serving others to actually loving them. It's not enough just to serve them. We're actually called to love those who are different from us. And so today we want to pose a final question. And the final question is this is that throughout our lives, every one of us is going to go through calm and stormy seasons, both individually, perhaps in your relationships, in your family, um, but also as Canadians. We are going to go through calm seasons and then stormy seasons like we find ourselves. And the question is this, how do you stay anchored to Christ in stormy seasons and in calm seasons, but how do you stay anchored to Jesus in all seasons? That's the question we want to look at today. This summer... This summer, Lori and I rented a cottage. It was the same cottage that we rented a summer ago. And there's an occurrence that happens, though, with the GPS. How many of you love GPSs? When you don't know where you're going, they're very, very handy. I remember, how many of you remember paper maps? I remember paper maps as a kid, which actually led to real family conflict in the front seat that I could observe. But I'm not here to tell stories. I'm just saying I could see what happens. GPS. Summer cottage, all back roads. The, the main roads were fine, but how many of you know country roads ain't like main roads? Found ourselves on these roads, which were just kind of like dirt and gravel roads. And about seven minutes before you arrive at the cottage, the GPS says, you've arrived at your destination, but you're nowhere close, and you're in the middle of nowhere. And so again, the first year that happened, it caused a little bit of panic. We moved ahead, we found it, and we figured it out. The next year when it happened again, we kind of like vaguely remembered, oh yeah, we had this happen before, and we got ourselves there. Well, later in the week, we were staying there, and uh, one of the girls were bringing up one of their friends, and as their friend was being driven by their mom, guess what happened? They hit the end of the GPS, and fear and panic struck them. Because they're in the middle of nowhere. And so they called us, but here's what was incredible. Because we knew where they were and where they were going, we were able to speak a word of peace. We were able to speak a word of just saying, don't worry about it. If there's only one road, just follow it in about five to six, seven minutes, depending on how quickly you drive, but you should slow down because it's precarious. So we should see in about seven minutes, we're just on the left-hand side, okay? Because again, we knew where they were, we knew where we were, and so we were able to say, relax, this is where you are. This is where you're going. Even though this isn't working, you're going to get there. Can I say this to you, beloved? There are a lot of things in culture that have stopped working, and we as a culture are freaking out because we know where we are, but we don't know how to get where we're going. 
But we as followers of Jesus have a high priest who knows where we are and knows ultimately where we're going. And so my heart is, can we trust, can we keep following Jesus? I believe with all of my heart for you that this is a prophetic word for you, whether you're here or you're at home. I believe for the church in Canada, which includes you, that you are in and we are in a season of formation for future assignments. That we are in a season where we are, our character is being tested. It is not just for the season that we're in. It's for a future assignment that God has for you. And our obedience or disobedience in this season does matter. It does matter. Not maybe for what the weight is on your shoulders today, but perhaps what it would be tomorrow. One day, a disciple most known for his doubt, which is not a great thing to be known as, because actually Thomas did a lot of great things. But he's most known for his doubt. One day he asks, though, Jesus a really insightful question. He said, Lord, uh, Thomas said, we don't know where we're going, and so how can we know the way? That's my little story just a moment ago about the summer cottage roads. We don't know where we're going, and so how can we know the way? That's a really important question. When Jesus is off doing what Jesus was doing and the disciples were working really hard to follow Jesus, but they couldn't follow him because of how he was moving and they couldn't all figure it out, Thomas basically stops and says, Lord, which is a beautiful language of submission, okay, we're following you, but how can we know the way? What he was basically saying was, tell us the end so that we can get there ourselves. But here's the deal. That's not how Jesus works. Actually, how Jesus works is I'll give you the next step and then the next step and then the next step. The goal is you follow me and in following me, I will form you to be who I've called you to be and you will get to where you need to get. But if I gave you the whole picture now, you're gonna pause your following. How many of you know if Jesus would have answered him and said, well, Thomas, here's what's gonna happen. Here's what's gonna unfold. There's gonna be a lot of messages and there's gonna be a lot of miracles and then I'm gonna be brutally killed on a cross and every single one of you, all you disciples, um, one of them's gonna betray but the rest of you, you're gonna lose your life. So come on, let's go. We're gonna keep going this way. Thomas would have been like, actually, I have another career that I had in mind. But Jesus, no, 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 no. I'm gonna use your life to turn the world, not upside down, right side up, but I can't change the world because you're the very substance of it, so you gotta keep following me. Jesus says to him, Jesus told him, how can I know the way? And then Jesus responds, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then four words that are very pivotal words, still today, if you know me. The only way you get to know Jesus is spending time with Jesus. It's not, it's not if you know about Jesus. If you know me, then you're gonna know my Father who is in heaven. We're the same. So Jesus says to Thomas, direction is important, yes, but intimacy with Jesus is of greater importance than just mere direction. It's different. Knowing where you're going is learning. Everyone say learning. It's learning to trust Jesus. It is practicing the disciplines. It's, it's engaging our spiritual disciplines. It's learning to trust Jesus. None of us, not one of us, I don't care how spiritually mature you think you are, none of us come to follow Jesus naturally. Oh, we come to jealousy naturally. We come to anger naturally. We come to lust naturally. We come to greed naturally. I don't even have to work at those things. But when it comes to following Jesus, 
learning to follow Jesus, practicing following Jesus, oh, this is something that every single one of us is growing in to different degrees. And knowing where we're going is learning to trust Jesus. Some of you are 15, 16, 17 engaged today listening. You know, like you're here because your parents are dragging you here and you're listening with one ear, but you got an air pod in the other ear. I know it, I get it. Here's what you're facing. Your next season ahead is determining whether or not you believe what is ultimately true about Jesus or did you just believe because your parents made you believe. This is the test every young person goes through. In your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, there's all these tests that we face because every human has values. And values develop convictions. Every single one of us go through conflict. Yes, to different degrees. Some of us, because of the brokenness of our own lives, we create more conflict in our own lives. Like we're our own worst enemy. We create conflict everywhere we go. We blame others, but we're oftentimes not the sole blame. Not we don't get all the blame, but there's some brokenness that God needs to heal. But then there are others of us who experience conflict not as a result of what we've done, but what others have done to us. That could also be all of our experiences, both and, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But we all experience conflicts, and conflicts test our faith. There's no such thing. I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate. By the way, did I mention how much I hate it? I hate when I'm watching the news or something, and it talks about that there are people of faith, and then there are people who don't have faith. Nonsense. Everybody has faith faith, they ju- and faces. Everybody has faith. They just have it in different things. Everybody has faith. For you to drive here took faith. You had faith that when you stopped at a light, that somebody else was going to appropriately drive and function in the same manner. It's just a colored light. But you had faith that when yours was green and theirs was red, that they would stop. Could you imagine if we did not have faith in that? Some of you are like, oh yeah, I, oh yeah, I know. Some, some, I'm okay, we're not talking about your driving. I was going to go there, I'm not. We're just going to keep moving right on. And persecution tests steadfastness. Well, values and convictions and conflict and faith and persecution and steadfastness. Church, let me tell you, Jesus lived his values and he held firm to it in conflict. And in the ultimate persecution of him laying down his life, he was steadfast in living out everything he preached. He is worthy of you following him and modeling your life after his and learning to trust Jesus, who is holy, holy, trustworthy, is something that we all call in church our walk with God. And every one of us have a walk with God whether we call ourselves atheist, agnostic, or follower of Jesus. Everybody has a walk with the God of the universe. And Jesus said that our walk with God is first to someone, then it is to something. How many of you know that we are human beings first before we are human doings? That we are humans who are called to be versus humans who are called to do. We are human beings, and so we are first called to Jesus, to engage with Jesus, to follow Jesus. Then we are called to do something in following Jesus, which again is to heal what is wrong in the world today. It is God using your spiritual gifts, your acquired skills, your natural abilities, and your life experiences. God uses all of these things, or he can use all of these things, for you and I to see on earth as it is in heaven. So I am saying all of that to say this. 
That calling in our walk with God must always start with a direction, not only a destination. It has to start with a direction, not only a destination. The answer to the question isn't how do I get to heaven? The answer to the question is, or the, the bigger question isn't how do I get to heaven? The bigger question is how do we see heaven on earth? How do we engage and follow the way of Jesus? Because again, it isn't just a future thing only. Yes, it is that. Yes. But the heart of Jesus wasn't pray a prayer and then I'll take you there. The heart of Jesus, no, was pray a prayer. Yes, one day we will be there. But in the space between, the heart of Jesus is that we follow Jesus. And by following Jesus, then we use everything he's given to us to see what is there in heaven show up on earth. Or else there's no purpose. Well, why did I give my life to Jesus and then I'm just waiting to be evacuated from this really, really bad place? That's not the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, or the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is I follow Jesus, which may start with a prayer. I surrender my heart to God. And then again, I walk with Jesus and he uses my life to show up things on earth as they could be in heaven. And one day, yes, I will dwell with him. But the entire goal of my life is not that day. That day will take care of itself if I continue to follow Jesus. Are you with me? Has anybody here in your life, by a show of hands, ever done something in one season that you thought this was the right thing to do, only to, in another season, realize this may not have been the best thing to do? Can I see your hands, please? Like eating the whole cake felt right. And then it just wasn't as you were around a different throne for a season of time. Yes, I did just say that. Well, the church, we also experience these things. And in the 90s, there was a popular way to lead people to surrender to their hearts, surrender their hearts to following Jesus. And I've said this often, and again, I'm not critiquing it from the sense that it was all wrong, because it wasn't at all but I think it was just short-sighted. And we can see that now in 2021. And we used to say oftentimes like this in services or moments like, hey, I'm gonna ask everybody here, whether you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus, whether you're in faith or you know, you're, you're faith in something else, I'm gonna get you to pray a prayer. And together we're going to pray a prayer. And the the prayer is not about joining a church. It's not about joining a life group. It's not about joining a denomination. It's not about joining an organization because those those were problems back then. So I'm not asking you to join any of those things. I'm just asking you to pray a prayer. And in one essence, that's absolutely right because to be saved, to move from being lost to found, it is found on the cross of Jesus plus nothing, which can start with a prayer, which can start with a sigh, which can start with a step, which can start with surrender. So yes, in one way, it is not in order for you to be with Jesus one day, you need to pray a prayer and go to church. No, no, it is based on the blood of Jesus plus nothing, which is why the thief crucified next to Jesus can simply say, remember me, and Jesus responds to and says, today you're going to be with me in paradise, not you have to do all these other things. So in one way, it was correct. Just pray a prayer. But here's the problem. Canadians actually listened. And here's what we see. That in 2019, so this is 
pre-pandemic, the pandemic has further accelerated this. In 2019, Statistics Canada report shows that 23%, only 23% of Canadians participate in a worship service once a month. That's whether, that's whether that's Islam, whether that's Christianity, whether that's Judaism, or some other form of religion. Only 23% of Canadians participate in worship services once a month. And that's down from 1985 quite significantly. But here's what's interesting. 37% of Canadians actually engage in spiritual activities every single week, only they do so exclusively on their own. And here's the problem with that. The problem with that is when you and I follow Jesus, it's not just meant to be something between you and Jesus. It's meant to be something that we walk out together in community and community becomes sort of a mirror to our hearts and lives. Look, I know that people around you annoy you. I get that. And you perhaps may annoy them. But there is something about us being the body of Christ together. There is something about you and I walking in community together. There is something about your purpose cannot be fleshed out just with you alone, that your purpose must intersect with somebody else if you and I are to be used by God, that there's something that we have discipled and said, hey, we, we short-circuited something here by simply saying, just pray a prayer rather than, no, the prayer is the beginning to following Jesus in community. And no community is healthy, which means the entire community needs to surrender to be more like Jesus. Because this is what Jesus said is true of every human. He implied over and over and over again that people, everyone say people, people, events and circumstances, and of course spiritual forces, which we did this summer, they influence our beliefs, which impact our choices every single day. And the choices we make or the choices we do not make when, when, when not making a choice is still making a choice. So the choices that we make or the choices that we do not make, they set the direction of our lives, the way in which they go. And there are far too many followers of Jesus who prayed a prayer one day, but they stopped following Jesus. They started, and I am grateful for their ultimate destination, but how many of you know, again, the gospel isn't just destination, it is direction along the whole way. This is how we see societies begin to change. Let me ask you this question. We're going to ask this a couple of times in the next year ahead. In your lifetimes, can I, by a show of hands, whether you can put them up online or whether you're here, in your lifetime, have you seen Canada change? Can I, can I see, if you say, yes, Canada has changed in my lifetime, can I see your hands, please? Canada has changed in my lifetime. Here's the beautiful thing. If Canada has changed, Canada can change. And Canada has been changed by people like you and I are changing Canada. People like you and I every single day are changing what this nation is. And so you can't just reserve yourself to the fact that, ah, okay, sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be, will be. No, 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 that's a demonic lullaby. Let's engage the way of Jesus together because if Canada changed, then Canada can change. Okay, we're going to do that a couple more times in the new year so we get that one deep in our hearts. Here's what Jesus said, though, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life? And Jesus said, few find it. Now, few find it, not because it's hidden, but because it's hard. Oh, has anyone here ever pressed snooze on your alarm? Let me tell you something. It is easy, and that, that road is broad. It's beautiful. 
and it's broad. Most snooze buttons give you eight to nine minutes more of sleep. Now, if you've already woken up, been woken up by alarm, here's what you already know. There is nothing to be gained by nine more minutes of sleep. The cumulative value of nine more minutes of sleep in the next year is and amounts to nothing. See, that's not true. Add up all the nine minutes. No, 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 no. On your physical body and your sleep schedule, nine minutes adds zero value to your life. Zero value. I know none of this matters for tomorrow morning. I know that. I understand that. I'm not a sleep expert and I don't care to be. But here's what I know. Nine minutes of intentional time with Jesus can change the direction of your life. In one snooze cycle a day, that's it. In eight or nine minutes, do you know what you can do in eight or nine minutes? You can practice two minutes of silent prayer. What is silent prayer? It's not complicated. You sit there and say nothing and do nothing. Why would I do that? Why on earth would I do that? Because if you practice two minutes a day of silent prayer, you know what you'll discover? The problem isn't the noise of the world out there. It's the noise of the world in here. Because you'll practice two minutes of silent prayer a day where you say nothing and you do nothing. You just sit Lord, I thank you that your mercy is new every morning. I'm just going to sit in your presence today. And in that moment, every single notification, red notification on your phone, it's like, ooh, I want to touch those. Every to-do list starts to come to the surface. Every, Every person who annoys you, and there's a lot of them, begin to come right to your mind in those two minutes of silence. Some days... All of your insecurities and inadequacies in silence. Some of us don't like silence, not because it doesn't do anything, but because of what it reveals. I want to run, I want to busy, I want to distract myself. Don't talk to me that, don't talk to me. Two in nine minutes, you can do two minutes of silence. You could read a Bible or listen to a thing on a Bible for four to five minutes. And then you could have a few minutes of prayer where you say, God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity to follow you. I thank you for my relationships. I thank you for this dumb job that I have. Yes, you can pray that. Hopefully it'll change to you like I'm grateful, but you might have a dumb job and you can say, God, I thank you for this dumb job. Lord, I ask you for a different one, but I'll be faithful with the dumb one first. Lord, I thank you for it. Lord, I thank you for my annoying boss. And if Lori prays that, we got a problem. Just a little joke there, but not really. Moment of insecurity. <laughs> All I'm saying is this. There are things that we can do in our life that over the course of our life add no value whatsoever, like one snooze. And in the same amount of time, there are things that you can do that are so small and they seem so insignificant, but they can change the entire direction of your life and destination of your life. They can posture your life in such a way. Okay, here's one little practice that I've begun to do. Anybody here in life ever find themselves frustrated? Can I see your hands, please? Okay, okay. 
So I take a piece of paper and I write on that piece of paper on one column all the things I'm frustrated about. And on the other column, I write now all the things that I'm frustrated about that I can't control. And I give those to God. Turns out I'm frustrated about a lot of things I can't control. But I don't pay attention to the things I can because I like being distracted by focusing on things I can't change rather than things that God is desiring to change in me. Ooh, that's a terrible word, terrible word. See, when it comes to hard times, don't fear them. When it comes to narrow ways, don't fear them. Because hard times create strong people and strong, tested people create good times for others. But good times, they have a tendency to create weaker people, but weaker people create hard times for others. In every season, let your story be filled with developing Christ-like character. And as we begin to wind down here, which means absolutely nothing, but hopefully gives you some form of hope that I will end this millennia, I want to end by speaking about your character, which every single one of us have not arrived. We all have character that needs to be looking more like Jesus than what it does today. We have flesh that needs to die. Mine may look different from yours, but it equally needs to die. That I need to learn to walk by the Spirit and not by the things I want to walk by. Every one of us shares this in common. And a concern that I have, a pastoral concern, not a criticism of any of you, just a pastoral concern I have, is there are far too many Christians today with the character of Samson that want to change the world, they want to change Babylon, but they need the character of Daniel. In order to develop tested, strong character, God puts us through trials. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he does. And there's a difference, there's a big difference between being hard, like jaded, cynical, critical, judgmental, broken, unhealed, that's hard, hard-hearted, and being absolutely fortified and tested and humble and vulnerable. It's different. Daniel is the story of the possibility of living in exile in Babylon, surrounded by worldly influences and propaganda. But if one sets their mind to serve and follow Jesus, they can make a Jesus-sized difference. For Daniel, obviously, a God-sized difference. Daniel lived in Babylon. He is taken from his homeland, and he is in exile in Babylon. His Hebrew name isn't Daniel. It's Bel-T-Shazar. He and his three other friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are also their Babylonian names, were trained for three years to attend the king. But individually and together, their alliance to God is greater than the king towards the king of Babylon. And Daniel experiences what Dr. Robert Clinton calls an integrity check. Everyone say an integrity check. And though this happened a long, long time ago, and I know it's 2021, God still checks your integrity. He doesn't check your integrity. Again, he doesn't put checks on your integrity because he doesn't love you. He puts checks on your integrity to show you who you are, more so to reveal who he is, 
but also oftentimes because there's a future assignment that God has for you that this has got to get healed and shored up if he's going to put the weight of that on your shoulders. And you can't oftentimes see this assignment when you're experiencing this integrity check. But Daniel experiences an integrity check, and here's what it is. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, he's in training for three years to learn how to serve the king. And so the king wants him and his friends to have the abundant things of life, to learn what it is to live in the king's palace. But God has a different plan for Daniel. And it says this, that Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. In other words, in this story that we see in Daniel's life, he has an integrity check. As a Hebrew, there are certain things that he is not permitted to drink, nor is he permitted to eat. Yet he is tested in this moment where he is alone. Yes, he has a few friends, but truthfully... He's away from home, and he's away from his country of origin. And now he's being pressed by the Babylonian culture around them. He's in the world, but he's not to be of the world. But the world never seems pushing in on his values. And his integrity is being tested in this moment. His integrity starts here. Will you compromise here? Now, it's going to push to a den of lions. It's going to push to how he worships. It's going to push to who is central. And Daniel actually gets the weight of leading and being leadership of an entire kingdom. But again, he doesn't get that now. What he gets is this little assignment. Will you eat this or will you refrain from this? And Daniel is faithful to push back and honor God in this place. And God provides Away. This moment of testing enables him to stand on tougher issues later. And I want you to contrast this with another Old Testament individual named Samson, by the name of Samson, who God has given him tremendous gifts. He's tremendously strong. He's equally called by God, but Samson was a Nazarite. And you know what that simply meant as well? It means a lot of things, but basically and simply, it means this that Samson's story. It's a story that we, repeat, we see repeated often. Samson, like Daniel, very much the same. There were certain things as a Nazarite that he was not to eat or drink or touch. But Samson, unlike Daniel, eats and drinks and touches all of these things. And here's what's remarkable. How many of you know sin is never a problem until it is? It's not as though the moment he touches these things and compromises in these things, it's not as though in this moment he sees the effect of it. But the moment Samson begins to put his feet on this road, there is only one destination that is assured. And there comes a moment where he thinks that he's in control of sin, not understanding that sin now is in control of him. And he trusts the wrong person with the source of his strength. And Samson, again, as I said a moment ago, is a story that we see repeated far too often. Someone living from their gifting, but not their character. Living with the mistaken belief that they are in control of sin when it's always the other way around. Unlike Samson, we see, unlike Daniel, sin blinds, binds, and grinds Samson's life from him. Now, wherever God is at work, I've got good news. You'll see redemption. You'll see the goodness of God. And at the end of Samson's life, yes, there is redemption. And to God be the glory. But Samson's life is also a testimony and a warning that what you set your feet 
too, you will end in. And yes, God can redeem his story, but this wasn't God's plan for Samson's life. And we have too many Christians with the character of Samson wanting to change Babylon, but they need to have the character of Daniel. They need to have a different substance than which they are placed in. And the only way for God to grow the church is to allow us to go through some trials and testing so that we can be formed and fashioned and see what our faith is in and make the necessary adjustments and changes individually and together. Pop quiz as we close. Ready? Pop quiz. Like legit. Pop quiz. Five questions. Ready? Ready? Thank you. Daughter, thank you. I was dying up here. Thank you. Five, five integrity questions. Don't shout them out. Like if the answer is no, not be like, no, just in your heart and in your head. Question number one, this is an integrity check from the Lord for all of our lives. Are you willing to forgive? I don't mean like love people with boundaries. No, 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 no. Are you willing to forgive? Question number one. Question number two. Are you willing to confess your sin to somebody you trust? Are you willing to confess your sin to somebody you trust? Well, I only need to confess it to the Lord. James says otherwise. Confess your sins one to another. Because sometimes the sin isn't only against the Lord, it's against other people. Well, God would never want me uncomfortable. Oh yeah, he does. God absolutely wants you uncomfortable and being healed to look more like Jesus rather than comfortable and bound and becoming deformed out of the character of Christ. God, your comfort is not his primary concern, nor is mine. If you've read the Bible, you can quickly see that our comfort, (laughs) follow Jesus and your life will be absolutely beautiful and comfortable. Where does this, what? Well, Jeremiah 29, 11. Yeah, but that was to people in Babylon, also in exile. And in, like, Come on. Forget it. Question number three. Are you willing to do what you can by God's strength to right a wrong you've done? Ooh. Ooh. Are you willing to trust God's truth is greater than your truth? Live your truth. Mm-hmm. And trust God's is greater. Number five, are you willing to put God first, starting with your time and your possessions? Each time we answer yes, positioned in Jesus, we become more like Jesus. And each time we answer no, it's an opportunity for God to move. But wherever confession increases, sin decreases. And wherever confession decreases, sin increases. And sin moves from individual to systemic. We've seen it over and over and over and over again. God moving is the story of Christmas, which we now turn our hearts to starting next week. And aren't you glad that the message of Christmas is good news? Okay, this month... How many of you know there's lots of things that are wrong in the world? But just this month, that's bad news. 
can we focus our hearts, please, not just on what's wrong in the world, but the good news of who has come into the world? That's the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is not, oh, the world's terrible and it'll always be terrible and only be terrible. No, the message of actual Christmas is the world can actually experience heaven on earth, not because we have arrived, but because God is with us. So together, let's stand and pray. Let's put our hands out in front of us like this. And all together, let's say, dear Jesus, search my heart today. Show me how you can use my life my trials to create on earth as it is in heaven for others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. See y'all at All Church Prayer.